Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. Down the line, we have uh, Hugh Van Stienis, who's in charge of bank analysis at Morgan Stanley. This week, we'll be looking at Standard Chartered as it faces accusations that it hasn't stopped entirely its Iranian business. Ring fencing, back in the limelight as the Bank of England decides on the final rules. And we look at the knock-on effect on dividend payouts in the UK and also the broader European banks' dividends outlook. And finally, a look at Santander as it prepares on Wednesday to announce a new strategic plan to investors. First, though, to Standard Chartered. Martin, you were involved in writing a big analysis piece with some colleagues on this controversial topic of Iranian business that Standard Chartered has been involved with. Of course, they got fined very heavily uh, a few years ago and wrapped over the knuckles in various ways by regulators for their breach of sanctions. What was reported over the last couple of days by us was that some of this stuff went on far longer than we thought. Give us the kind of snapshot of what you discovered. Okay, so this is an investigation by a team at the FT that's been running for a few weeks. And we published on Monday what we found, which is several documents seen by the Financial Times that appeared to indicate that uh, Standard Chartered has not broken its links to Iran as quickly as the bank itself said it had, and crucially, not as quickly as the bank told regulators in the US. Now, to understand this story, you've got to go back to the settlement that Standard Chartered agreed with a bunch of US regulators in 2012, when it paid a fairly big fine, hundreds of millions of dollars. But it also said that it had stopped all new business with Iranian clients in 2007 five years earlier. Now, the documents we've seen indicate that that was not the case and that Standard Chartered appears to have been continuing to sign new business with Iranian clients, even some Iranian clients who were on the sanctions list well after 2007. And indeed, the bank seems to have been unable to determine whether it still had ongoing business relationships with some Iranian clients after the settlement in 2012. Now, some of this was known that, you know, the bank was still in trouble with regulators and and regulators had disclosed that they were looking into this issue last year. But we've actually seen some documents uh, and emails that show, for instance, senior managers writing to a sales team in Dubai suggesting that they go after a list of clients, including one Iranian entity that was under sanctions at the time. This was in 2009. So potentially pretty damaging. Now we think this is exactly what regulators in the US are looking into. And you've got to remember that in the eyes of the US, this is extremely serious because even though President Obama is in the process of lifting some sanctions on Iran as part of this deal with the country on its nuclear program, 
regulators are still extremely concerned about money flowing to not only the country's nuclear programme, but also militant Islamist organisations such as Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas, the Palestinian group. And those concerns will continue and some sanctions will remain in place even if some of the economic and financial ones are lifted. And Standard Chartered is seen as a repeat offender by US regulators and they're particularly angry that in the settlement in 2012 it appears as though the bank was not completely truthful and they were fined again last year for their transaction monitoring system not picking up risky transactions in Dubai as well as in Hong Kong. So there's a real concern that there could not only be a big fine, but also this deferred prosecution agreement that the bank signed in 2012 could be reopened and the bank could face some kind of criminal charges. And crucially as well, potentially losing its dollar clearing licence, which is the thing that is all important to an international bank because it processes a lot of transactions through the US. And I guess that's one reason why the share price fell so heavily on our story. Yeah, the shares were down 4% yesterday. They're down again about a percent today. They're down near 10-year lows now. This isn't just because of regulatory issues. I mean, the bank is facing difficult conditions anyway because of a slowdown in emerging markets and fall in commodity prices, which are two key client areas for the bank. But it is heavily dependent on its ability to access dollar clearing for its clients for trade finance, for energy deals, for cross-border financings. And if Standard Charter's ability to access dollar clearing is restricted, then that could be quite damaging for the bank. An early nightmare for the new chief executive, Bill Winters, to resolve. Let's move on to the second topic, staying with Martin. Ring fencing, you wrote a piece again with colleagues the other day about the imminent finalisation of the UK's detailed rules around ring fencing from the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority. Interesting points that were raised in there, maybe some sense of pragmatic watering down, some might say, of the strictness of those rules, particularly as regards the movement of capital within a group and interesting knock-on effects for dividends and payability of dividends. We'll come in a moment to Hugh Van Steenis at Morgan Stanley, who's got interesting things to say about the dividend landscape more broadly in Europe. But firstly, to you, Martin, on that point in the UK and ring fencing in particular, what do you think are, the, are we likely to see from the Bank of England and, and what are the consequences? All the indications are from talking to the five big high street lenders in the UK, Royal Bank of Scotland, Lloyds, Barclays, Santander and HSBC is that they have shifted somewhat in their attitude about ring fencing from one of, frankly, alarm and uh, deep concern over how they were going to deal with this to a slightly more relaxed attitude that they can meet the obligations that they're being required to. And I think that's because they can see a more pragmatic approach from regulators. That's certainly my impression. And there's still you know, a lot of the fine detail in this uh, still yet to be decided, particularly around key areas such as corporate governance, How much overlap can there be between the ring-fenced part of the bank, which is the part that deals with the retail depositors, and the rest of the UK operations, and how much overlap there can be on the boards of those two entities, and also with the parent, the holding company at the top. And the other area that there is concern about is on financing and how much control will they have over, for instance, the ability of the parent group to extract capital out of 
the ring-fenced entity if it's in excess of the requirements of the regulator. So I think we could see some clarity on those areas, but the final rules won't be in place until the end of 2016 or early 2017. So that is a bit of a concern for the banks. They want the regulator to hurry up and to give them some clarity on this because banks like Barclays, for instance, wants to have the structure pretty much in place by the first quarter of next year. Let me bring Hugh Van Steenis in from Morgan Stanley at that point. Hugh, thanks very much for joining us. As Martin was saying, ring fencing rules in the UK, even if they are slightly diluted, they will present some kind of constraints on dividend paying ability, certainly within the group. But you're fairly bearish about UK banks, particularly on dividend capacity going forward. There have been some indications of dividend cuts. But interesting, you contrast that with the broader European picture. Well, I think for me, dividends are the asset test for a bank's investor. Do we have clarity about the shape of bank regulation and the earnings power of the bank? And I think it is striking that a number of the UK banks either have cut their dividends, like Standard Chartered or signaled they won't be increasing them, like Barclays. And I think that speaks to the ongoing challenges as regulation is still evolving in the UK. And I think, you know, Martin's piece about the structural change in the UK is still very challenging. I think there is a new settlement which is trying to have a process of consultation to have an outcome which works for the UK banks, but it's still a real hurdle. Across Europe as a whole, I think that bank dividends are still under constraint as banks are trying to earn their way into their new ratios. But there's a number of banks which this year have actually hit or beaten their expectations. And I think it's interesting, the bank stocks which are up most this year, whether it's UBS, ING, Intezer or KBC, are all ones which have signaled they can increase their dividends. And so what we're really looking for is You know, we're truffling around Europe for which bank stocks can potentially increase their dividends into next year. Yeah, it's an interesting environment, isn't it? Because although obviously in some ways UK regulation is tougher than in other places around the world, there is certainly an expectation of toughening regulation in continental Europe as well to come. And let me bring Laura in at this point because... I know, Laurie, you've been looking particularly at the whole topic of risk-weighted asset flaws and so on and and issues that that will present for profitability, ultimately, of banks and therefore dividend capacity. Yeah, so there are two separate things going on here. At global level, they're looking at the way banks calculate their risk-weighted assets and they may do more to kind of harmonise that. And the risk-weighted assets are important because one of the major capital thresholds is set relative to risk-weighted assets. So at global level, there are going to be changes. But then separately, at European level, the ECB, which is now the regulator for the banks across 18 countries, they're looking at the way banks assess their risk-weighted assets and they may force more harmonisation there. And the impact of that could be that banks which have a very high common equity tier one ratio now suddenly find that they don't. So you could go from having a CET one ratio of 15%, which would enable you to pay high dividends, to a CET one ratio of, say, 10%, which would make it very difficult to pay any dividends at all. And it is a big unknown for the banks. I mean, one of the things about this thing that that the ECB is doing is it is going to take them several years. So you have that uncertainty for several years. Now, it is possible, and you and his colleagues and other analysts have done it, it's possible to look at which banks are going to be most affected by this. But you can't be too prescriptive on the outcome until we know more about exactly how far down the route the ECB is going to go in terms of actually harmonising things. So I think that is going to be an uncertainty in terms of dividends for the Eurozone Bank certainly for the coming years. Hugh, would you kind of agree with that point? Broadly, but I maybe have a, there's a ray of sunshine peeking into me as well. So I think this is a global phenomenon. I mean, take Australia. They recently asked the Australian banks to double the amount of capital they're holding against their mortgage loans, 
which has driven almost every Australian bank to raise capital and also hold back their dividends for the next couple of years. So I think this is a very big material global issue, as Laura said. I think in Europe, the amount of capital banks hold against mortgages is they've got there's a 17% risk weight on average, but that varies from 6% to 33%. So there's a huge amount of difference. Where I think the ray of sunlight will be is that on just a pragmatism about where there are serious housing market imbalances and where they're not. And I think it's interesting that Switzerland was the country which took action first on mortgages, and they've had a very high increase in house prices in the last couple of years but as they play as a safe haven. Sweden's the country which probably stands out to us in Europe, which has the greater risk. And we downgraded one of the Swedish banks today on the back of that analysis. Whereas in the Eurozone, we really haven't got any housing bubbles at the moment, or certainly ones which are debt-fueled. So I'm counting on a degree of pragmatism as central bankers look at housing market dynamics first and then sort of model second. Let's hope your optimism uh, is well-founded to you. Thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Our final brief topic for the day is Santander, as it prepares on Wednesday to outline its new strategic plan. Martin, what are you expecting? We're expecting a, a new set of targets from Anna Botin and also the first real chance for investors to get their teeth into her strategy for the Eurozone's biggest bank by assets one year since she took over from her late father as executive chairman. Are they going to be exciting, the targets? Well, I've looked at some of the analyst estimates and analysts are predicting a slight uplift in terms of return on equity targets and capital targets and perhaps even cost cutting targets from the ones that the bank currently has in place. I think that there are big questions facing Santander, particularly some of their key markets. Brazil is their biggest or second biggest market by profitability, depending on the year. And that country is facing a big recession. In the UK, the bank has just been slapped with a big super tax by the UK Chancellor, which will hit the net returns to the group. And in the US, you know, the bank continues to underperform and it faces a lot of regulatory pressure from failing stress tests. So there's a lot of questions to answer for Anna Botina. But I think, you know, all the indications are that she will try and convince investors that she's going to generate organic growth in loans in some of these key markets, focusing on the core businesses, you know, steady increase in capital, perhaps slightly more aggressive cost cutting emphasis, and all of that should generate some solid earnings growth. So in a word, will it be enough to reverse the underperforming share price? Well, the shares have done very poorly compared to the sector over the past year since she took over. How much of that is her fault? Um, As I said, these macro conditions haven't helped. But I can see analysts quite liking what they will hear from Anna without being overwhelmed and coming away thrilled with excitement. We will see next week. That's all for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura and also Hugh Van Steenis from Morgan Stanley. And thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye.